All right. Good morning, guys. <laughs> uh, I want to just pause kind of up front. And um, we had kind of a big event yesterday. Some of you know um, Affordable Christmas. And, uh, and many of you showed up to volunteer. Many of you led. Many of you donated money or gifts. And, uh, and I wanted to thank you for your participation. And um, hopefully, if you were there, uh, you had a great time. I mean, it really was a kick. Um, we had um, about 100 families signed up. We were slated to serve about 200 kids. I don't know what the exact numbers ended up turning out being, but it was awesome. Um, and so thank you for your involvement. Thank you for sacrificing and giving and being involved. It was a great way for the body to come together and, um, and really just love on people, right, and, and to celebrate and um, to, uh, to meet people in their need. And so uh, thank you guys for um, your generous engagement with that, and uh, I trust that uh, you walked away blessed for your involvement. All right, this morning we're continuing our series in um, the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Uh, It's an Advent series we're calling The True Light, and uh, we're taking the five weeks leading up to Christmas to focus on this season that the church calls Advent. It's a season in which uh, the church is called upon to basically prepare our hearts to be ready to worship um, so that we're engaged with um, kind of the, the, the calendar and, and with the events that we are celebrating. And in our attempt to help us um, guide our hearts into that place, we are spending um, these five weeks in the gospel first, gospel, first chapter of the Gospel of John. So go ahead and flip over there. If you have Bibles, if you don't, go ahead and grab one off the floor around you. We have them distributed throughout the room. And uh, in our Bibles, you're going to be flipping over to page 886, 886. Uh, but we're going to John chapter 1, and uh, we're going to read the first eight verses together. All right, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The word of the Lord. Right, last week, we looked at the first section that focused on Jesus as the word and, and his pre-incarnate uh, transcendent glory and power. Um, and, and, uh, and this week, we're looking at this next set of verses, which focus on John. John the Baptist, um, uh, we go from transcendent glory to very earthy um, uh, and, and, and a bit of a wild man. And so we're going to dig into that. Uh, before we do, I want to set the stage a little bit. Um, this has been another couple of crazy weeks, hasn't it? I mean, as far as, as events and um, things going on in our country and around the world. Uh, a week ago Friday, a lone gunman killed um, three people at a, at a planned parenthood clinic. And even as we were processing that and getting our heads around that and finding out details about it, I mean, within days, a couple murdered 14 people and injured 21 in Southern California. And I think, I mean, if you were like me, I think most of us were honestly just bewildered. I mean, this is the sort of thing that, that we're, we're You've been around long enough, you kind of get used to hearing these things. They happen uh, on a fairly regular basis, but the succession, the, the savagery, the, 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 it's, it's, we're just left asking again? Like, really? Again? Less prominent in our news, this week there was a firebombing in a nightclub in, in Cairo, Egypt, that killed 16. And right now, right, like right now, there's a flood taking place in India that's killed almost 300 people so far and has displaced almost half a million. And this is only the stuff that makes the headlines, you guys. This is the sort of stuff that's big enough to actually get a a, a CNN slot on their website or a mention on our feed. The world is freaking messed up. I mean, there's so much suffering, isn't there? 
It's like we're swimming in a sea of pain. (laughs) And the best we can hope is that it stays far enough away from us that it doesn't affect us personally, at least not on a regular basis. And this is why, you guys, we need the season of Advent. I was sitting this week studying John the Baptist, who is this really weird New Testament character, wild man, prophet dude, and asking silly questions like, what can John the Baptist teach us about Advent? And what does this voice crying in the wilderness possibly have to say to us today in our culture, in our place? And I had a sermon idea that was all developed. I, I, I knew where I was going. Um, and uh, as the week came to a close, I ended up throwing that idea out. And um, I feverishly rewrote. And um, so that's where we're going. It's, it's a little rough. Uh, it's a little different than I thought where, where, where I thought we were going. Um, but sometimes things just weigh on your heart. And when they do, um, you kind of have to just work them out. And so that's kind of where we're going. I'll, I'll give you some in, a little bit more as we go through. Before we start, though, I want to give you a little bit of background about who John the Baptist is. Uh, a lot of people don't know his story or how he fits in. You know, like we're reading the Gospel of John. John the Baptist didn't write the Gospel of John. That was the Apostle John. Those are two different Johns. John the Baptist um, is mentioned in, in all four of the Gospels, and he is truly unique in biblical history. He is described as a man filled with the Spirit from birth. He was set aside before he was born to be a prophet. And God had, had anointed him, in a sense, for this work before he was even born. That, no one else uh, is like that in Scripture other than Christ himself. He was born a prophet for the express purpose of being the forerunner of the Messiah. That was his role, to come ahead of the Messiah, the Christ. Um, and as a result, he ended up living as an outsider in his own time and in his own culture. Um, and, he, and he's kind of a wild man, right? It's just, he's described as wearing camel's hair. Now, I've never worn camel's hair. I don't know a lot about it. But from what I understand, that was like the least attractive of all the choices made available to him, right? He wasn't wearing wool, right? He wasn't wearing something soft. Camel's hair was rough. It was, um, it was, it was just not the first choice of, of, of most civilized people. Uh, it describes him as living in the desert and eating um, wild honey and locusts. For his sustenance. And so he's, he's this desert dude wearing camel's hair, eating what he can find. Um, that's generally the kind of guy you stay away from, right? I mean, this is the kind of guy that when you see him, you're like, there's probably something wrong with you, right? There's potentially a, a mental thing, and, and I hope you get some help, but I'm going to walk on the other side of the street. These are not generally the kind of guys we tend to gravitate toward, right? Um, he is this wild man. And, and, and instead of going into the city, I love this, he's standing in the desert and he's crying out, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? He's standing in the desert yelling uh, his message. And amazingly, he gets attention. People start coming out to him. He's, he's standing by the river Jordan and, and he's proclaiming this message and people are coming out to him and, and, and they're hearing this message and, and, and the spirit is working on their hearts. And they're like, you're right. The kingdom of God is at, is at hand. There's, there's change coming. God's at work. God's doing something, and, and, and it calls on me to align my heart with it. And so they were being baptized um, to show their identification with the message um, and to show as an outward sign their inward repentance, that they were, that they were engaging um, what John was calling them to. As a result, the religious leaders end up hearing about John. Um, the religious leaders kept a, a, a tight Um, grasp on on what was happening in their communities, and and they looked to to basically interpret everything and and tell people what to think. And and so when they heard about John the Baptist, I think they pretty much decided up front that that he was crazy. They just needed to figure out which box of crazy he fit in. Um, Take a look down at verse 19, because in verse 19 through 28, John describes this, and, and honestly, I love his description. John loves irony, uh, John, the, the author of the gospel, loves humor, and, and it kind of comes out in this text. Starting in verse 19, and this is the testimony of John, John the Baptist, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they said, okay, so you're not the Christ. What then? Are you Elijah? He said, nope, nope, not, not that one either. Okay, then you are, must be the prophet. He said, nope. So they said, well, then who are you? 
We need to give an answer to those that sent us. What do you say about yourself? I love this. Um, It was not uncommon for people to impersonate the Messiah. Um, Everybody in the Jewish culture knew the Messiah was coming, that the Christ had been predicted and that he was going to come and deliver the nation of Israel from their their oppression and into a full expression of the kingdom of God. And, And so there were Messiahs that would crop up occasionally, people that would pop up who claimed to be the Messiah. That was the first box of crazy. And so they went out and they're like, are you that? Is that who you think you are? He's like, no, not even close. Like, okay, so that box is off. Maybe you think you're Elijah. Uh, In the Old Testament, in the book of Joel, it says that Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so the Israelites thought that that Elijah was going to come before the Messiah would arrive. So surely you're, you're Elijah. That's who you think you are. Now, not Elijah. Okay, then, then you must think you're the prophet, which would be a reference to Moses. They also believe that Moses was going to come before the Messiah showed up. And, and he's like, no, three strikes, you're out. And I love the, the well, then who are you? Because we, we have to give a report, right? These guys are, these guys are not the leaders. They're, they're the Johnny Clipboards. They're the interns. They're the ones that, that are being sent by the leaders to get information because the leaders want to be able to, to tell the people what to think. And they're like, look, we have to give an answer. We've got we to tell our bosses who you are. So, so why don't you stop being ornery about it and just tell us, okay? Because we want to know how to classify you so we know how to deal with you. Um, John's response in verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He said, he said that, that prediction in Isaiah 40, verse 3, that, that voice that's crying in the wilderness, that's who I am. That's who I am. And my message is clear. I am making straight the way of the Lord, which in the original Hebrew is the, the name Yahweh, which is the name God gave himself when he revealed himself to Moses, the, the great I am, I am that I am, right? He's like, I am making straight the paths of Yahweh. I am here to be that voice in the wilderness, which was a little bit confusing for them because there weren't a lot of people showing up claiming to be the voice crying out in the wilderness. Not exactly um, an attractive position to take, right? Much more attractive to be the prophet or Elijah or something like that. Verse 24, he goes on. Now they had sent, uh, they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, well, then why are you baptizing? Right? If you're just this voice in the world, why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not, that I am not worthy to untie. There's already somebody here. There's somebody standing right in your midst. And he's the one I came. To proclaim. He's the one I came to, to be the forerunner of. And that's why I baptize, to announce him. Verse 28, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. They didn't know what to do with him. In fact, most people didn't know what to do with him. The religious leaders didn't know what to do with him. The You'll find out even his own followers didn't know what to do with him a whole lot of time. In verse 29 through 34, his testimony continues. In verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Statement of his eternality. I myself didn't know him, but for, the, for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John's testimony, first of all, he's like, hey, there's Jesus. You guys look over there. That's Jesus. I came to be the voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the paths for, for the Lord, for Yahweh. That Jesus, that's him. Very clear statement of the deity of Christ. That, that's Yahweh. John believed Jesus to be God in the flesh. That's Yahweh. I came to be his forerunner. But not only was he Yahweh, he was the Lamb of Yahweh. He goes on and says, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This was a reference that every Jewish listener would have understood. When Egypt, um, when, when Israel was delivered from Egypt in the Old Testament, and you guys kind of remember the story, I'm sure, when Moses was sent and, and, and said, let my people go, and God brought 10 plagues on the nation of Egypt, and, and finally he sent the angel of death to, to kill the firstborn, to, to motivate Egypt to release his people. And, and God said to the Israelites, I want you to sacrifice a lamb and take that blood and put it on your doorpost. And when the angel of death comes to your house, he will pass over you. And the angel of death will not visit you because the lamb's blood will cover you. And what John is saying is Jesus, that Jesus right over there, he's the true and better lamb. He's the lamb that will take away the sin of the world, not just give you temporary protection from a temporary judgment, but he will give you eternal security in an eternal forgiveness because he will be the lamb. He is Yahweh and he is the lamb of Yahweh. And he will remove your sin by removing your guilt and dying in your place. And he'll pay for your sin once for all. And then he goes on and he says, this is the guy. You want to know how I know this? Because this is the guy that when I baptized him, I saw the Spirit of God come down like a dove. The other gospel accounts give a a fuller description of this. John's not describing it. We're just hearing uh, John the Baptist explain it. But but when he baptized Jesus, the Spirit of God descended like a dove and, and the voice of the Father came from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom all of my delight rests. It was a clear proclamation at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. This is the one. This is this is the Christ. This is the Son of God. And John says, I saw it. The spirit who indwells me told me that that would be the one when I saw the spirit come down and, and, and sit in that way, that he was the one I was sent to make way for. So he was a forerunner for Jesus. And he was declaring that Jesus is the one. He's Yahweh. He's, he's, he's um, the lamb of God. He is, in fact, the son of God. All right, when a king would enter a city during this period of time, they would often send a forerunner ahead of them. So the forerunner would come into the city and announce the coming of the king, right? Why? Because the king didn't want to come into the city and be ignored. He didn't want to just like have to fight traffic, right? He wanted things cleared. He wanted the way set up, right? And so they would send a forerunner ahead of him to announce his coming, to proclaim that the king has come. He is, he is move out of the way, right? Give him due honor. Make sure you recognize his glory. And then when the king arrived, the forerunner Uh, his job was done. So John was that forerunner. He came ahead of Jesus. Now, I saw something interesting as I was sitting in this. And it's the first time I've noticed it. Normally, when the king comes, the forerunner falls behind and follows, right? He leads into the city. And then when the king comes, the forerunner's job is done. The forerunner falls into line behind the king and follows the king, right? So he starts by announcing and he ends by following. But that's not what John does. John sees Jesus. John baptizes Jesus. John announces Jesus. And then he stays down at the river and watches him walk away. He keeps proclaiming the kingdom of God and baptizing and telling others about Jesus. I mean, how weird is that? You guys look over one page in chapter 3, verse 22 through 24. Starting in verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, Jesus wasn't baptizing people. It was his disciples. But notice what's going on in the next verse. John also was baptizing at the Aeon near uh, Salem because water was plentiful there and the people were coming to be baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. They're on the same river (laughs) on opposite sides. And they're both baptizing. Like John came to be the forerunner of Jesus. John came to announce Jesus. Jesus showed up and John kept right on going. You can imagine that creates a little bit of confusion on John's disciples, right? They came out and they're like, yeah, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and then they, they hear, you know, John saying, look, there's the Lamb of God. There he is. But he keeps right on baptizing. So it creates a little bit of confusion. Starting in verse 25. Now a discussion arose among some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, 
Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, that's Jesus, the one, that, the one that you, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Do you hear a little bit of fear in their voice? Maybe a little bit of defensiveness? Like, like dude, your camp is like getting depleted. Your followers are leaving, right? He set up camp right across the street. And everybody's going over there. Are you going to do something about this? John responds, verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. What an incredible response. John the Baptist looks at his disciples and he's like, you guys need to get something straight here. I've never told you I was the Christ. I'm not. It's not my kingdom. It's not my glory. It's his, right? He's the groom. I'm the bridegroom. He's the groom. I'm the, I'm the best man. I'm the friend, right? What's the best man's job? To steal the spotlight from the groom? No. His job is to applaud the groom, to come alongside the groom, to point the light on the groom, to celebrate the groom and take joy in the groom's joy. That's his job. He's like, that's my job. My job is to show up and point the light on him. My job is to come and, and, and proclaim his glory and his kingdom and, and his purpose, not mine. I'm not here to set up a competing kingdom. I'm not here to live my life in my way and get territorial about my kingdom and my glory. It's an incredible expression of humility. And here's the thing, you guys. Honestly, I think this should be the heart cry of everyone who follows Jesus. Because I think what we have here is a simple description of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Now, here's the thing. If you've believed in Christ, you are a disciple of Christ. There's, those aren't two different things, right? If you believe in Jesus, you are a disciple of Jesus. And, and, and I think what we have here is an example of the heart attitude that should be ours and we should be growing in. He must increase and I must decrease. It's about his kingdom. It's about his glory, not my kingdom. Not my glory. It's about his story, not my story. My story has meaning because his story has meaning. John the Baptist was shining a light on Jesus. And John the Baptist was made glorious, not by his talents, not by his skills, not by his work, but because of his proximity to Christ. And he took great honor and great joy in putting all the glory where it belonged. He must increase and I must decrease. It's about us. Stop trying to be God and instead following God. All right, now I told you that I ended up changing directions with this sermon. Um, And this is the convergence point. Um, This was the spot where um, I really was going to sit right here in this idea, he must increase and I must decrease talking about how God gets his glory, and when God gets his glory, we get our joy. And the practical application of that was, was going to be we need to be serving because serving is an incredible way for us to discipline our hearts to take joy in the shadows because that's really what, what John the Baptist is doing, right? He's standing in the shadow of Christ, taking joy that, that Christ gets to be so bright even though um, nobody is even noticing him. And, and here's the thing. I'm going to tell you this. It is good for you to serve. Christmas is a season in which it's really all about us, isn't it? You're like, no, dude, I have kids. <laughs> it's all about the kids. It's still all about you, right? Why do you buy so many presents for your kids? Why do you work so hard so they have a great experience? Because you have this ideal image in your head of what your family is supposed to be like and what your Christmas is supposed to be like. It's still all about you. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong because I think there's a certain element in which God designed us um, to work for our best and the good of our family, right? I'm not saying that's sinful or wrong, but I am saying that, that especially in our culture, we become incredibly self-centered and self-consumed during this season. And it's good for us to discipline our hearts by serving others. 
it's good for us to serve, especially in ways we don't get attention, especially in ways that we don't get applause, right? That really makes your heart hurt, doesn't it? You ever, you ever, it's like, I'll do this for this person who will never say thank you. I'll do this in a way that I will never be noticed. I will work and sacrifice and I'll never be thanked. Praise God, because he gets the glory. When I get out of the way, he gets all the glory, not me, right? All they're left with is thanking God because I'm not there to thank, right? That's actually really hard for us. Why? Because we love the glory. We love to be thanked. We love to be noticed. We love to serve in ways that help us build our kingdom. I'm telling you, it's good for your heart to serve in ways where you don't get the applause. It seems counterintuitive. I I put a quote in your bulletin back when I was writing this first sermon uh, from Plato that that expresses what I think is really a common assumption. Plato, a famous Greek uh, philosopher, said, how can a man be happy when he has to serve somebody? (laughs) Isn't that a lot of times our hard attitude? I can only be happy when you're serving me. I'm showing up to a party. Aren't you supposed to serve me? I'm showing up to an event. Are you supposed to prepare for me? I'm here. Aren't you supposed to be thinking about me? How can I be happy if you're not thinking about me and I have to think about you? This is the inverted values of the kingdom, and I'm telling you that you'll be blessed as you learn to give him the glory and stop fighting for your own. Give him the credit and stop fighting for your own. And nothing humbles us and our hard, prideful hearts in beautiful ways like service, especially the kind that doesn't go uh, noticed. So I'm going to tell you to get involved. We have a lot of ways. I mean, there's obviously we can talk about serving your neighbors. We can talk about serving the poor. We can talk about things like affordable Christmas. We're also talking about things in our family gathering, right? Trailhead Kids, which, you know, is in your bulletin insert. It takes 40 volunteers to run a single service back there to take care of our kids. And not just take care of them, but engage them in gospel-centered material. We need more people. We're running on a skeleton crew, which means the people we have are being overworked and overbooked. It means they have to show up and often have to stay longer than they expected because nobody else is there. We need more people involved. We need more people stepping up, right? A lot of you are drinking coffee right now. Praise God. Somebody got here early, like an hour early to make that coffee so we could drink it, right? We need people that are willing to not just find the most convenient and easy way to serve, Now, if that's the best you can do, awesome. If that's your first step of service, praise God, I'm not condemning you. If your first thought is, okay, I'd like to be involved. You've never been involved before. You're like, what's the easiest way to get involved? That's a good way to start, but don't stop there, right? That's the first step of discipleship. You need to go farther and start asking questions like, how can I invest in ways that really bring a blessing to the body? How can I bring my energy to to bear in such a way that, that God gets the most glory, right? Be more involved, sacrifice more, give more, and I'm telling you, you'll be more blessed, right? John the Baptist isn't moaning and groaning here. (laughs) When he's saying, he must increase and I must decrease, he's speaking from a deep, deep place of joy. And I'm telling you, service is integral to that. All right, that's the sermon I was going to preach. And I think it was going to be pretty good. Um, In fact, I think it was so good I still had to preach it. Um, But here's the thing, you guys. What God was working in my heart was this simple thing. I just couldn't, why didn't, why didn't John the Baptist stop baptizing? Why didn't he follow Jesus? Why did he keep, why did he baptize him and then let him walk away and then keep on doing it? I asked a couple of very, very smart friends this, and they said the same thing. They said, because he wasn't invited, which is technically true. To be somebody's disciple, you didn't just decide, hey, rabbi, I'm going to be your disciple. You could make yourself known to that rabbi, but that rabbi had to invite you into discipleship. Jesus didn't invite John the Baptist. So he couldn't just decide to be his disciple. But that still leaves the question, why wasn't he invited? What was so unique and so important about his ongoing ministry that kept him from being called to the next stage? Why did he have to stay down by the river? continuing to preach. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Even while he's saying, look, there's the king of the kingdom. He's here. So here's the thing, you guys. I think there's something powerful for us here. John the Baptist was a prophet called to help prepare people's hearts for the coming kingdom. And as a result, he had a message of repentance. That was 
the drum that he beat nonstop. Repent, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not a real popular message, uh, not the kind of message that's going to get you invited to a lot of parties, especially when you're dressed like he's dressed. Um, it leaves you as an outsider. It tends to make people very uncomfortable, right? I mean, if somebody's just continually saying to you, um, you're broken, repent. You have sin, repent. That's a hard message to keep hearing, even if we know it's true. Here's the thing, though. That message is a message of mourning and yearning. Mourning what is broken and yearning for it to be fixed. That's what the call of repentance is. It's mourning and yearning, mourning the sin, mourning the hurt, mourning the brokenness and yearning for its restoration, yearning for the fullness, yearning for it to be made better. John the Baptist was sent to shine a light, not just on Jesus, but on the brokenness of the world and on the brokenness of human hearts. Why? To light people up in desire and in longing for the coming kingdom when all things would be made right. So much so that they would repent, that they would come to this place of mourning their brokenness and yearning for the fulfillment of the kingdom to the place where it had its proper working in their lives. And they actually changed. They actually stopped doing certain things and started doing other things. Why? Because they were moved to this place where they were crying out. I hate the brokenness of the world. I hate the brokenness in me. Will you fix it? Will you deliver me? Will you change me? Will you deliver the world? Will you change the world? When Jesus came, there's no doubt that that John's message took a keen note of joy. When he said, the king is here, he's present, and the kingdom is present with him. That was joyful, right? He pointed at him and said, look, there he is. God has not abandoned us. Make straight the ways of Yahweh. There's the Lamb of God, the Lamb of Yahweh, the one who will stand for us and die for us so that we can be forgiven. God has not abandoned us to our brokenness nor walked away from our sin. He's so fully identified with us. He's become one of us. So he can fix us and give us hope in our pain. You guys, think about what a rush it must have been for John the Baptist to baptize Jesus. He's looking at Jesus saying, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. And then he gets to take him and baptize him, right? What an incredible rush when you get to baptize Yahweh. When you realize that you're holding in your hands God in the flesh, the Lamb of God, the hero of the story, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the one who will make all things right. But the joy of the present king didn't stop the longing for the fullness of the kingdom. John felt the joy of the king and celebrated him like the best man next to the groom. He felt joy, and he pointed the light on him and celebrated. But he also felt the ongoing sorrow and yearning for the fullness of the kingdom. It's time to celebrate, but it is not time for the final celebration. I think what John the Baptist teaches us, that it is time for both songs of joy and songs of sorrow. Nothing awakens our soul to the beauty of the presence of the King like embracing the joy and embracing the sorrow. Embracing both praise and and lament. You guys, as we enter into the spirit of Advent, we need to create space 
for sorrow. As we enter into the spirit of Advent, we need to create space for lament. So you're like, Steve, seriously? (laughs) This is like an Advent series, man. This is supposed to be about joy, right? I came here to get my weekly dose of joy. It's hard enough to get through the holidays, man. I don't need to hear you talking about this stuff, right? I'm here to to celebrate the eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus and his golden fleece, man. I'm not here to talk about sorrow and pain and suffering, right? Here's the thing, you guys. As a culture, we don't do sorrow well. As a Christian culture, we don't do lament well, us included. We really don't. You know what we do with sorrow? Diagnose and fix. That's what we try to do. Diagnose and fix. And the problem with brokenness and the problem with sin and the problem with pain is that you can diagnose it all you want. You can't fix it. That's why we have to learn how to lament. Because sometimes the only appropriate response to pain is lament. (coughs) Lament honors the brokenness by looking at it and seeing it in all of its ugliness and yearning for what could have been and should have been in its place. Lament has been called the language of suffering. And sometimes it's a language that is uttered without words. We need to create space for lament. We need to learn how to embrace and experience sorrow. Listen, I'm I'm just being real here, you guys. This whole thing is new to me. I'm going to tell you, this is not, sorrow is not, (laughs) is not my thing. Um, I'm a, I'm a diagnose and fix kind of a guy. I'm a stuff it and move on kind of a guy. There's been enough pain and hurt and, and I've learned how to just close those doors and move on. And I am learning that that in fact dishonors the very God that I claim to follow. And it dishonors, honestly, the way he wired me. Here's what I'm learning, you guys, as I'm sitting in this. And I don't fully even know how to unpack it. And I definitely can't do it just this morning, but I want to open the door to it. Here, joy and sorrow, joy and sorrow are twin sisters in this world. And if we refuse to honor the sorrow, we reduce our ability to experience joy. Many of us, honestly, try to go through the holidays with one eye open to the joy and the other closed to the pain. If we're honest, some of us hate the holidays. Because they hurt. We come with all these expectations of joy and family and love and acceptance and shalom, the fullness of being. And we've been disappointed again and again and again. And what do we do? We close our hearts. And we turn away from the pain and in so doing numb our hearts even to joy. And so we go through the Advent season just doing our best. We white-knuckle it. We fight hard. We put on our best face. We psych ourselves up. And we come to worship after being exhausted with family. And often we come to the Advent feast, a feast that should be rich and full and powerful. And we find it laid out with plastic fruit and dry bread. Listen to me, you guys. There is a brokenness in the world that demands lament. 
There's a brokenness in us that demands lament. There's a brokenness in our families. There's a brokenness in our hearts. And as we learn to lament the brokenness, we reawaken our hearts to joy. But if we try to run from the sorrow and ignore the pain, if we try to deny the reality of it, if we become cheerleaders of our family and cheerleaders for Jesus, the pain doesn't go away. It just changes shape. It's like a neglected child. It will demand attention. And it'll come out in bitterness, cynicism, despair. I'm just giving up. I'm going to make it through. I'm just going to give up. This is never going to change. They're never going to change. This is just going to hurt. This is just the way it is. Denying the pain is a way of giving into it, of saying this pain will have the final word, and the best I can do is pretend that it's not there. And it will turn to quiet bitterness and despair, which is why some of you secretly hate the holidays. You come with such high expectations, and you've been disappointed. Even in the best family, even in the best setting, doesn't every joy tinged with sorrow? Because we know, we know where this goes. We know how this ends. We don't know when. But there is a shadow cast over all of creation that demands lament. What I want you to hear is when we refuse to embrace the sorrow, to see it for what it is, we end up truncating our joy. And I think John the Baptist teaches us to embrace both, to celebrate the king and yearn for the fullness of the kingdom, to celebrate the joy that God brings through his redemptive work and still mourn for the brokenness that remains and yearn for the restoration of all things. Here's the thing, you guys. The beauty of lament is that it isn't passive. It's not just giving in and saying, okay, it hurts. It's a very active engagement with pain in which we're not just admitting and feeling the sorrow, but we're actually bringing it to God. We're bringing the gospel to bear on the suffering. Sung Chan Ra, who wrote a book called Prophetic Lament, put it this way. He said, lament, therefore, recounts suffering. Lament stems from an acute experience of pain, be it physical, emotional, or spiritual. It is the human response to anguish and adversity and is not bound by the rules of praise. Lament is an act of protest as the lamenter is allowed to express indignation and even outrage about the experience of suffering. The lamenter talks back to God and ultimately petitions him for help in the midst of pain. The one who laments can call out to God for help. And in that outcry, there's the hope and even the manifestation of praise. All right, listen to that last sentence again. The one who laments can call out to God for help. And in that outcry, there is the hope and even the manifestation of praise. There's pain in our lives. There's pain in our families. There's pain in our hearts. God's not going to remove. We want to diagnose and fix. We want God to become a magician and just say, fix it. You know what magic is, right? Magic basically bypasses the natural process of getting to an end. (laughs) I don't want to go through the suffering that comes to a resolution. God, just fix it. And we all know that he doesn't, at least not most of the time. Because he has a purpose in the pain. He has a process in the suffering. He is doing something. Even if we don't understand it, even if we don't see it, he's doing something. And the way we faithfully engage that process of suffering is by learning to bring it to him. And bringing the pain to light in his presence. 
And that's not always pretty. I don't know if you guys have noticed, the book of Psalms is, is the biblical book of, of, of music, right? 40% of the Psalms are laments. People crying out to God. Here's the thing. You make a shift because what ends up happening is if you deny the pain or if you deal with it in appropriate ways or you're trying to just stuff it down and it keeps fighting for your attention, you know what's going to end up happening? You're going to end up asking Why? Why is this happening? Why won't it go away? Why won't this stop? Why won't you fix this? Why won't you heal this? Why? Which is an accusation against God and the cry of a wounded spirit saying, I can't fix it and I don't trust you to. When we take that pain and we express it in lament, the why shifts and becomes how long? And we see that over and over and over in the Psalms. How long, O Lord, will you restrain your hand? How long, O Lord, before you break in? How long, O Lord, before you make it right? Do you realize that even in that language, there is the birth of hope? There is in that language a gospel application that allows us to see in the pain a greater purpose and a hope for reprieve. And we move from questioning God to asking God questions. And then we'll move from asking God questions to resting, even when we don't have the answers. We have to learn how to lament. If we want to prepare our souls for joy, we need to create space for the sorrow. And we need to learn how to express it in lament. To truly enter into the joy of the coming Savior, we need to open our hearts to the lament that required his coming in the first place. The sin, the rebellion, the brokenness that's manifest in every relationship. And to truly taste the joy of the King, his presence, his reign, we need to open our hearts to the sorrowful lament that his kingdom is not yet fully realized. All right, as we wrap up, Um, I'm going to lead us in a blessing. This is something that we do occasionally here at Trailhead. If you're new with us or you haven't been part of it, I'm going to ask you to simply bow your head and you're going to cup your hands, which is a way of receiving blessing. It's a physical way of saying this blessing is mine. But but what's cool about this is this is also the position of supplication. Hands out, palms up is a way of saying I'm helpless and I need. And as I lead us through a, a liturgy of lament. This is a proper posture saying to God, I have a need that only you can meet. I have a pain that only you can remove. There's a suffering in this world that only you can fix. And I'm yearning and I'm mourning and I'm waiting. And then when we're done, I say all of God's people said, and we take that and we wash it over ourselves and we say, amen which is a word that means let it be, or it is true. It's our way of saying, this is, this is my heart's cry. Now, this is too weird for you. I'm okay with that. Um, you, you can just sit there and, and listen and watch. That's fine. But I encourage you to enter in. So let's go ahead and bow our heads and cup our hands. And, and I'm going to lead us through a, a liturgical prayer of lament. At certain points, I'm going to say, Selah which is a Hebrew mean word that means to pause, to reflect, to consider. It's used throughout the Psalms, and I'm going to use it here as we take moments to simply pause and reflect as we pray. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we lament. And we want to learn how to do it better. We long for the coming of your kingdom. And we lament before you the signs that your kingdom has not yet come in its fullness. Lord, we mourn with the families and the communities that have been devastated by the senseless murders in Colorado Springs and San Bernardino, those in Cairo, the people suffering and dying in India and Nigeria and Nepal. Lord, all over the world, our hearts are weary with so much suffering. We hurt with how much these people hurt. We hurt 
as people made in your image hate other people made in your image. And we confess that our hearts often grow cold. Selah. Lord, we lament the conflict and sorrow in our own homes. The injustice, the abuse, the neglect, the expectations that have been let down, the ways we have suffered. Lord, we lament the injustices and abuses and the hurts we've given in our own homes, in our closest relationships, how we've been let down and how we've let others down. Selah. Lord, our souls weep for our own broken desires, the way our hearts long for and run after everything but you. Lord, we lament that we eat what is not true food and we drink what is not true water and then complain and accuse you when we're starving. Selah. Lord, we mourn. And we lament and cry out because we know you listen. We know you're there. We know that you know our pain and you have not left us alone. We lament to you because while we wait, you work. So we ask that you will grow our faith and our hope and our joy. O Lamb of God, the one who knows our pain, who took our pain, who suffered the full weight of our sin. We are poor and powerless. We are lost and needy. And you love us. You've come to redeem us. And you will come again to restore us to your glory. We long for you. We celebrate you. And ask again that you will come soon, Lord Jesus. Come soon. And all God's people said, Amen.